You're listening to episode 94 with George McGraw, founder and CEO of digdeep.org. This episode is brought to you by the Rogue Water Lab. Hi, this is Seth Siegel, author and senior fellow at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee's Center for Water Policy. This is the podcast that is demonstrating the value of communication in the water sector. It's water in real life with my friends, the H2 duo, Stephanie Corso and Ariane Shipley. We are proud to announce our new nonprofit venture, Rogue Water Lab. A tribe, an experience, a calling, a hub where you can learn, connect, and grow. The lab is cultivating the next generation of innovators in water communication and education. Why? Because progress is a human story. And those who tell the stories rule the world. So the question now belongs to you. Are you ready to join the revolution? So in episode 92, we spoke with Zoe Roller with the U.S. Water Alliance, who was part of the team that worked on their publication called Closing the Water Access Gap in the United States. And they worked closely with George McGraw, who is the founder and CEO of digdeep.org. And so we got to speak with George about not only working on that project, but how incredibly important it is for us to bring focus to the situation that's happening. And in the current situation where with this pandemic and the intense scrutiny on hygiene, I absolutely cannot imagine living in a situation where I did not have access to clean water and sanitation. So this is just a loud call to action to use this as an opportunity to just see the ways that we, even us in water, sometimes just take water for granted. We know where it comes from. We know how much work it takes to keep it flowing. But hearing stories like this really drives it home to the absolute value of it and how we need to be telling that story. Uh, we talk a lot about diversity inclusion too and how just it's so important that we get out there in these communities, in our own communities and engage with the people that are living the issues that they're living every day and to get their perspective and their insight and their perspective because it's going to be them that are actually going to be the ones that are going to champion any change that we see in the communities. We just have to be the ones that empower them to do so. So a little bit about George. He is a human rights advocate specializing in the human right to water and sanitation in the United States. George currently serves as founder and CEO of digdeep.org, the only WASH organization serving disadvantaged communities in the United States. Founded in Los Angeles in 2011, Dig Deep develops education, research, and infrastructure programs aimed at at extending access to clean, hot and cold running water to every American. Under George's leadership, Dig Deep won the 2018 U.S. Water Prize for its Navajo Water Project, which has brought clean running water to hundreds of Native families across New Mexico, Arizona, and Utah. In 2019, he worked with U.S. Water Alliance and Michigan State University to publish Closing the Water Access Gap in the United States, the first national study to outline why some 2.2 plus million Americans still live without access to running water or basic sanitation. This is an incredibly powerful one, folks. So without further ado, let's get to the show. Um, we love a good origin story. And a lot of times when we ask people this question, most people tell us that water chose them because they just feel like they didn't follow this traditional path to end up working in water. But after, I mean, 80 some plus episodes, we've kind of discovered that there really isn't a traditional path into the water industry. Um, but you told us that you've always kind of been into water. So do you think that you chose water or did water choose you? Well, I'm not sure I can get that philosophical with it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I am a water sign. Does that help? I'm a Scorpio. Oh, there you Scorpio, go. Yeah. cancer, cancer. Yeah. Um, no, I, I growing up always was obsessed with water. Um, not professionally because, you know, what four-year-old wants to work in the water sector? Maybe there <laughs> are some out there. We are. We're working on them. Yeah. Uh, but I, I was the kind of kid like your mom would take you to the zoo and she'd go to buy the tickets and I would, you know, she'd turn around to find me and I'd be stripped naked playing in the fountain at the entrance. Nice. Um, yeah. Always trying to swim, you know, I, I have uh, this tremendous connection to water and I, I like most, I think, um, sheltered Americans of the quote unquote post-racial nineties really thought that, um, water was something that just everyone had. Um, so I never really imagined a career in water. And then, um, it wasn't until sadly college that I realized that, um, there was this thing called the global water crisis and there were 
hundreds of millions, even billions of people without access to this thing that I loved, but even, uh, even sometimes still took for granted. Um, and so I, I really thought then, wow, I found something I really care about and want to work in. And so, um, I decided to work internationally, helping people get access to water and sanitation. Nice. I love it. So I, uh, Ariane's going to ask you kind of the origin story behind that, um, in a sec, but, one of the things that I really loved in looking at looking at your website is that the way that you describe Dig Deep is that most most uh, nonprofits within the water world talk about being a non a nonprofit. Water water somehow plays into that, but I love that you describe it as a human rights uh, as a human rights nonprofit because I think that's a really important distinction to make when talking about. Uh, water and people's access to it. So sorry. I'm yeah, quick. I think that. I'm going to riff on that if I can. I think <laughs> yeah, it's just absolutely. that, you know, most, most organizations in our space call themselves water charities. And mm-hmm. I think if you call yourself a charity, that means what you're solving is just a problem, you know? And if you, if you call yourself a human rights organization, what you're problem, what you're solving is, is an injustice. Mm. Um, it's like a, it's a structural deficiency. And so that's what we're trying to solve. 100. Shit already dropping bombs. Mm. Love it. Riffing. Okay, so your organization, <laughs> Dig Deep, was a partner on the U.S. Water Alliance report on water accessibility in the U.S. That was, I guess, released just late 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, November. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about Dig Deep, the work you do, and the role in that report? Yeah, absolutely. That report is called Closing the Water Access Gap in the United States, which is a whole mouthful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I promise you it's more fun to read than to say, uh, we did spend a lot of, <laughs> we did spend a lot of time. I don't know, you know, in our sector, in any sort of professional sector, you have to spend a lot of time reading reports and who wants to read reports are honestly so boring and lifeless usually. And we pulled out all the stops on this one. We have some incredible photography and design work, mm-hmm. but I think the smartest thing uh, that we did was we hired a um, Hollywood copy editor. Nice. Yeah, who made pitch decks for um, the film industry. And after we wrote the report, we said, um, all right, you know, take this, take this down to like a fourth grade reading level and make it super accessible and fun to read. And I think the report's great. That way. But I digress. That's brilliant. Um, <laughs> so there's a lot of our work. Yeah. There's a lot of science behind all of that. And it's something that yeah. we preach all the time about how we have to take this down to a reading level that people can actually understand and want to engage with. You know, uh, the great thing about the water sector is that people understand it. So um, for those of you listening, the sign just fell in the background <laughs> of the studio. And but it doesn't look like there were any workplace injuries, unfortunately. <laughs> My um, nail just fell out of the wall. Okay. Yep. Sorry. Very, very good. OSHA oh. violations, left and right. Oh, um, wow. Dinging us, dinging us. The, um, no, I think the wonderful thing about the water sector is that water is something that everyone understands fundamentally. Like we have this visceral connection to it, but it's not something we all understand intellectually. Mm. Like, you know, you talk to someone about not having access to water at home and you ask them to really take a minute and, and, you know, think about what that would be like and they can immediately emotionally connect to, Oh, that would be difficult. And I would hate that, but they can't necessarily intellectually connect to it. So like, okay, well, what would my day look like? Because mm-hmm. most of us just don't, yeah, you're right. Haven't thought about it. So I was, I was definitely one of those people who took it for granted. I, like I mentioned, I started my career in, in international water access and I was like that. I was that white kid. You write um, like a scathing blog post about on EDM. Um, <laughs> like wanted to work in water, saw a problem internationally, thought he was definitely the best person to solve it, got on a plane and built an organization to work in East and West Africa. So Dig Deep's work at first was in South Sudan and later in Cameroon. And um, I will say, despite having the narcissistic deck, deck stacked against me, we, we did some really, some really incredible work that I'm really proud of. But um that all changed in, in 2013, late 2013, when we got a call from a donor actually, or at the time, a potential donor named Karen. Um, (laughs) in the gay community, there's this term called a Karen. She's not a Karen. She's just Karen. And she, um, Oh my God. Our avatar for this podcast is Karen. (laughs) So we're going to like, we're going to put that in the parking lot to ask you about later. (laughs) Okay. Perfect. So Karen calls our office and she's like, um, you know, I have $50 and I really want to use it to get people access to water, but I want to spend it in the U S and I, I think you can do it. And I was like, 
Sweet Karen, um, I don't know if you've heard, but everyone here has water. So why don't you let me spend your $50 where people will really die without it. And here's the great work we're doing in East Africa. And she listened for a while and then she was like, um, you are such an asshole. Um, <laughs> I can't believe you don't know that this problem exists in your own country. Um, she had been out actually on the Navajo nation where we've done a lot of work, the country's largest native reservation. And, uh, she was building houses and she would build houses. And then at the end they'd move to the next house. And she was like, well, there's no kitchen or bathroom. Like where's the water? Where's the electricity? And they're like, Oh, that's, that's not a thing here in this part of the country. There's no running water. There's no electricity. Um, and she was like, well, how can that be? And she went online to find organizations working to solve that problem and couldn't find one. And so then she made it her personal crusade to get an organization to take her money to start doing that work. Um, and it's a good thing she called us because in 2013, I would do just about anything for $50. Um, <laughs> that has since changed. It's like a hundred dollars now. Okay. Um, so we, that, that very year we started the, the Navajo water project, which has since brought clean, hot and cold running water and solar power to, hundreds of families across North and Western New Mexico and now into Utah and Arizona. And it's the first time that uh, an organization has taken this work that we've been doing abroad for decades, bringing water to communities that don't have it and, and focused on the United States where shocker, there are still more than 2 million people at last count who don't have a, a tap or a toilet at home. Yeah. Which was kind of the, really the jaw-dropping number that came out of that report that we've been referencing that I think that everybody should read and to speak to your point um, to give incredible kudos. It is an, when I said it's fun, it's definitely, it's fun to read in that it's easy, easily digestible. I needed some whiskey while reading it because it was depressing just knowing that those, that people are living that way in America, in your own backyard. backyard, That is correct. And so, um, but it's just the way that it's laid out and uh, it's visually appealing to read too. And I love that it ends with some legit solid action items, action plans uh, to put into place to kind of begin to address some of these issues and closing that gap. So I think that um, if you haven't checked it out, definitely should. Um, what well, was and for it? our listeners who want to read along, it's closethewatergap.org. <laughs> closethewatergap.org. Uh, yes, yeah, so we're going to do a. Uh, are you you're reading the ebook version? I think can we can we just put that out there? We'll we'll release an ebook <laughs> version. We'll have we'll have George read it. There you go. And uh, oh, you mean like an audio, like on Audible? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I have a, I actually have a very very good performing voice when I when I get into it so we can get into that later too okay. oh it's good. not already because this you have a very good radio voice already so oh thank you but it's in the early days i would do the voiceover for like dig deep's promotional videos and there's this one where <laughs> sometimes i put it on just to listen to myself oh my god you're like the only person i've ever fashion. heard say that <laughs> meanwhile arian's back here shrinking away knowing that i have to listen to this later on i'm like <laughs> meanwhile i can't oh my gosh i also love re-recording my voicemail message my like incoming voicemail <laughs> oh message oh uh, it's one of my favorite things to do <laughs> who are you i can't wait to hear this amazing testimonial you're going to record for us later then this is going to be epic uh, so uh, what was um, what was Dig Deep's role in the? I know you guys were one of the V partners in working with that with US Water Alliance. So, what was y'all's role? How did you get tied into that? So, we started our work as I mentioned on the Navajo Nation, and we really focused there. Um, and thank God we did because it, you know, we, as we found out in the report, it is one of the hardest hit places in the mm-hmm. entire United States. New Mexico and Arizona are among the top states percentage wise without access. Um, if the Navajo Nation were a state, it would be our 10th biggest and 40% of people there, um, wow. don't have running water or sanitation. So we really started and, uh, we're sort of singularly focused on that. Um, and we started hearing from people all over the country from, you know, West Virginia and Alabama, you know, they'd say, Oh, I, I, I heard about your work on on CBS Sunday morning or I read about it online or I, you know, read your op-ed in the New York times. And, um, it, it's crazy. I, I thought, I thought we were the only ones. I thought we were the only family that still didn't have running water in the U S. Oh, wow. And so we saw 
how big and spread out this problem would be. And so we thought, okay, well, let's get the data and figure out where these families live. And then we can plan as an organization how to expand and serve them. Mm -hmm. Um, And we went to some federal agencies. We went to USDA. We went to EPA. And everyone said, go to census. And we went to census. And, you know, what we have is a really incomplete data set. You know, we've been asking this question um, since the middle of the last century you know, do you have hot and cold running water at home? And then we asked a list of questions that went with that. Like, okay, do you have a bathtub? Do you have a shower? Do you have a toilet? You know, do you have an outhouse? What's your water quality like? Um, and that list kept getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And in the 90s, we moved that question from the decennial census to this other thing called the American Community Survey, which is a lot less accurate. Mm. Um, and then as recently as 2016, we stopped asking people if they had flush toilets in their house. And I think the presumption on everyone's behalf is that this problem is solved. Like mm-hmm. everyone has access to water in the U S but in fact, it's not. And in the report, we actually found out that, you know, people are going backwards in some states, like more people mm-hmm. next year won't have access than before. Um, and so that data set really didn't exist. And we had been partnering with the U S water Alliance on some of their water equity work, which kudos to them. I think it's tremendous that that organization, which is um, a membership organization made up of water utilities and water districts and, and, and really technical people in the water space has the energy and the forethought to even touch the question of equity. You know, what is fair access to water? And because they were interested in that, it opened up this conversation like, Hey, we can't find these numbers. They're like, Oh, well, we can't find them either. And we're also interested in knowing that for our equity work. And so we said, let's partner on it together. And so we took it to foundations um, like Robert Wood Johnson. Um, Actually one of our first supporters was the United Methodist committee on relief, which is one of the biggest international wash funders. And they said, Oh, well, you know, let's, let's look at what this looks like in the U S. Um, and so after the funding partners were on board, the, the water foundation, some money from EPA, um, we went out and did this study and it's been a tremendously eye opening experience for us. Mm. And you, uh, I mean, you lived, you live, eat and breathe this every day. Uh, some of the issues that were discussed in the report, I just talked about that 2 million people without access. That's, that's a crazy number in itself, but was there anything from the report that, that surprised you? Like, what do you think was the biggest takeaway from the report for you being someone who's kind of boots on the ground with this issue for years? Yeah, I think, I think I had sort of two big takeaways. Um, the first was sort of the one I just mentioned. This report was divided into really three sections. There's like a qualitative and uh, sorry, quantitative analysis where we're looking at numbers, pulling every data set we can. And then there's a quantitative, a qualitative analysis. I, I can't get those two straight today. Um, <laughs> a qualitative analysis where we really sent researchers inside six communities across the U S who, you know, by all means aren't the only communities affected, but are really representative of yeah. communities across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, places like the Texas border region, um, you know, not too far from you all to Appalachia, to the deep south of Puerto Rico. And then finally develop this action plan with a, with a whole list of incredible um, advisors from across all sorts of sectors. In the, in the, in the quantitative analysis, I think the, the part that surprised me the most was that thing I mentioned, the fact that in six states and in Puerto Rico during the period we studied, more people at the end of the, at those periods lacked access to water and sanitation than, that, than at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there you know, if you can get someone to imagine the fact that there are 2 million Americans without running water, um, it's much harder to get them to imagine the fact that that number's growing. You know, there's this, yeah, there's this sort worse. of like supposition that like, of course we're making progress. Like we're Americans. That's what we do. We make progress. Mm-hmm. But this seems to be maybe the first time since the massive investments we made during um, the new deal and starting in the thirties where we're going backwards in yeah. access and that should scare the shit out of everybody. Um, that's really scary. Yeah. That's really scary stuff. I mean, that yeah. means we're not investing in our infrastructure. That means we're not seeing through our data, the people that are being affected. That means we're not taking our resources seriously. Um, and so that's scary. And then I think, but I think the, the thing that is beautiful, like you said about this report, but also sort of the whiskey inducing part <laughs> is that it's so human, right? Like we went out and, and entered people's lives and schools and homes and workplaces and asked them, what does this look like in your life? And you, we met people like Tori in West Virginia who was like, well, you know, I used to have access to water through this coal camp or coal mining water system. It went offline when the coal mining companies left and 
you know, I have some running water, you know, maybe seven days a month, but it's sort of a trickle and it burns my skin. And she's like, you had a baby a couple of years ago. And I, everyone gives you baby parenting books. And I was flipping through these books, trying to figure out, okay, how do I find out if the water in my home is safe to bathe my baby in? And how do I find out if my breast milk is safe to feed my baby with if I drink this water? Mm. Um, you know, things that you just can't imagine new mothers in the United States having to consider. Or, you know, kids that have to wake up three hours early in order to walk to grab a couple of gallons of water before they go to school. And by the way, they don't get to take a shower with that water or brush their teeth with it. Uh, and everyone else in school did this morning. So they have to deal with that shame and that stigma and that fear. And um, we saw things like, you know, youth suicide rates in these places going really high. Um, water is an incredibly powerful element in that it touches everything. It powers our whole lives. But if we get it wrong, um, it destroys everything too. Mm, absolutely. Oh That's my God. There's so cool many that. things about what you just said. Yeah. Uh, well, that quote. Mm. Yeah. And I, it's just something that you, I think it's really hard for most people in this country to have empathy around because like, to your point, it's just, it's just really hard to imagine the story that you were talking, talking about the child, you know, having to walk three hours. I mean, those are the stories that we use when talking about children in Africa that have to go get their water every day. And what, you know, we, in our jobs doing communication and education for water utilities and trying to get people to think about that, it never would have occurred to us that we could tell that story about a child in the United States mm. doing that too. So it's just- <laughs> it is sort of a very like Sarah McLaughlin for the AFPCA story, like on yeah. the eyes of an angel. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> You know, it's, it's, it is real. Um, Mm -hmm. and like, these are our neighbors. They're not strangers. They're not remarkably different than we are. Like, of course we have to, you know, respect the fact that we are an incredibly diverse country. And, you know, we as an organization work in sovereign nations, um, like the Navajo nation all the time where you, you do have to respect those differences. But at the end of the day, we are all Americans. These are people that vote that go to public school that in most cases, you know, pay taxes and, are, you know, civically active and the fact that they um, have to live in the same country that we do without the, the benefit of basic access to water and sanitation is seriously one of the most pressing injustices of our time. And it's so foundational that if we don't solve that problem for these mostly rural, mostly poor black and brown folks in the country, like we're not going to be able to solve any other problems. Mm-mm. Yeah, no. And I think, uh, one of the, to me, one of the reasons is just because it's not being talked about at all, really, at, by anyone. So I know in our initial conversation, we realized really quickly that we're kindred spirits in in our passion around solving this American water crisis. Again, that I don't think anyone is talking about at all or enough. Um, so I guess. My question is, why do you think this is, but not from the standpoint of trying to blame anyone or trying to, you know, bring anyone to trial or anything like that, but just in order to understand like what the hell happened so we can move forward and and fix this and make sure that this does not happen again, that we don't, however many years from now, look back and say, oh, we're actually um, digressing instead of progressing uh, to your point about the last time we invested in it back in the thirties with the new deal. So why do you think that is that no one's talking about this? Well, um, it's not a popular phrase, but I I really do think that this is the product of structural racism. Um, and that, you know, some of it is, some of it are sort of historical blind spots. Some of it was absolutely Mm -hmm. deliberate, but we really made an effort as a country starting in the thirties to invest in our water and sanitation infrastructure at the time you know, maybe less than half of the U.S. had running water at home. Mm-hmm. And we had huge instances of waterborne illnesses. It was a major factor in public mortality. We were seeing outbreaks of things like cholera. Um, and so we said, <clears throat> this is, excuse me, worth, worth the investment <clears throat> just mm-hmm. for the sake of itself, like just for the sake of public health. Um, so we built programs in the New Deal, um, you know, specific programs that we invested you know, the tune of what today would be trillions of dollars in bringing water, for instance, to just rural communities of less than a thousand people. You know, we had a whole department just for, just for that. And we were tremendously successful. Um, by, you know, the, by the late seventies, we had extended water access to, you know, more than 90% of the U S population across a gigantic country. Um, but some communities either deliberately or accidentally 
were really left out of that development from the beginning. There was a beautiful piece actually in the New York Times in um, November about um, racism running through the pipes in California. Um, and it was about how, you know, families, um, mostly black sharecropping families from the South moved to California as this sort of place of, of promise and prosperity. And when they got here, they, they realized that they had been beaten by all these Jim Crow laws that got here first. And so when they went to um, sort of emigrate to, <clears throat> sorry, immigrate to um you know, farm working communities in California's Central Valley, they found that they weren't allowed to live in towns like, um, you know, these small agricultural towns. And instead they had to live on the outskirts and create their own enclaves in places without running water and electricity. Those were the places that they were allowed to live, forced to live, could afford to live. And these towns and communities developed. And of course, um, those black families in those cases have been replaced with Latino farm worker families. Um, and, but at the same time, infrastructure has never been extended to them. Yeah. Um, and so towns that were literally born out of racism and that didn't get the same water and sanitation as predominantly white towns. And this happened all across the country mm-hmm. or predominantly affluent towns. Um, you know, they have been left behind and no one has spent the time to look at those places to really treat them and to help them catch up. And so that's what we found in the report. We found that this exists all over the country. Yeah, there's something, when we were working for a city before, um, I had a research project, and something that blew my mind was that the west side of town, where most of the African Americans lived, um, they did not have any water, or they had like a private company that didn't give them enough water, and then the city, like the city did not give them, you know, give them water. This was in the middle of the 70s late seventies and there's still like no water, no sanitation. And you're like, what in the world are you, you know, it's just, you don't, you think about this being like you say in the thirties or hundreds of years ago. And it's not, it was, it's, it still exists today. It still existed 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Like this is in our lifetime. It's so crazy to think about. Yeah. One of the things we saw a lot in the report was were these donut holes where you would have um, areas, for instance, in El Paso, where um, you have like, you know, Walmarts and TJ Maxx's and Taco Bell's and, you know, you know, tract homes and subdivisions, and they all have water, sanitation, electricity. And then right in the middle of them, you'll have this small community. It's a trailer park. It's a shantytown, whatever yeah, it is. Totally. It doesn't have access. Completely surrounded. And it's a 10-minute walk to a water main, or it's a couple blocks. Um, and they've just never been hooked up. And, and you know, so the, the fact that I this problem persists... never thought about persists, calling a donut hole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the fact that this problem persists is really a product of um, a lack of visibility, which is the first problem we're hoping to solve with this report. These communities aren't seen. They lack agency. Some things keep them from being seen. They feel um, scared to speak up. We heard that a lot when we talked to people because of fear of reprisals or fear that their water was going to get turned off or fear of their immigration status. Um but whatever the reason, they don't have the agency, they don't have the visibility. I think that's one problem. The other problem is that you both know, and I'm sure all of your listeners know, that water is a very complicated sector. Mm-hmm. It is, it's comp- like from one parcel of land in one county in one state to the next parcel of land, the reality can be completely different legally, jurisdictionally, technically. Um, and I think all of those things, we've let all of those structures develop and get in the way of our basic goal. Um, which is to get clean, reliable water access to every American in a way that will promote public health, safety, and and happiness and prosperity. And so we need to, as a sector, get back to that basic goal that should be animating all of our work um, and use it to create some streamlining. And, you know, to your question, Stephanie, you asked me, you know, who's to blame? (laughs) Um, And that question is so important and at the same time such bullshit because it's like we get so caught up in, in this country and like whose problem is this? Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? It was, we, there is someone to blame for, you know, what happened in most of these towns, but they're all they're dead. They're dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're all dead. And we shouldn't waste time on that, yeah. um, frankly. That doesn't mean we shouldn't acknowledge it for what it is. You know, when we see structural racism, we need to acknowledge it's structural racism. We need to you know, use that as a calculus and factoring, you know, how to solve the problem because ignoring that isn't, it's just, it doesn't get us anywhere. Um, but that's, that's different than saying, Oh, you know, 
this is Jim from accounting's fault. <laughs> and yeah, like, for sure. You know, that doesn't, that doesn't really get us anywhere either. So I, um, I'm a big proponent of, okay, name the problem, understands not only, you know, quantitatively what the problem is, but really qualitatively how the problem appears in people's lives. And then go to those people and empower them to solve it. Um, and I think that's what we should be doing as a sector is really empowering these communities that got left behind to solve their own problems. Of course, trying to keep the work burden off of them a little bit, but, um, yeah, giving them that agency. Well, I definitely, no, I didn't, I didn't actually want you to blame anyone because my, uh, that's why I said don't come from that standpoint, because I feel like when we start talking about the issues that are the most important yet the most difficult to talk about in Mm -hmm. related to water issues, I feel like one of the reasons, in my opinion, that it doesn't get talked about a lot is just because people are afraid, uh, afraid to get blamed, afraid that, and there's a lot of defensiveness around certain things feeling responsible for things that all these dead people did, uh, or like carrying on, uh, the, the way that it's always been done using air quotes here. And so exactly to your point, like who cares? Like, let's not focus on that. Let's just be honest, live, live our truths here and say it out loud, name that problem and just figure out how we can move forward from here. So I love, uh, yeah, I didn't, <laughs> I hope it didn't seem like I was coming for you. Maybe it's because I haven't had breakfast <laughs> no, <it's> yet. Good. <laughs> Um, but the, uh, yeah, I, I think to your point, we, we assembled this incredible team of advisors in this report, people from, um, places as diverse as, you know, water districts, Xylem, the communities themselves, Google foundations, the American heart association, um, the NAACP really a fascinating list of people. But the ones that I was most nervous about participating were the federal agencies Mm because I thought to myself, you know, this is a group of people who get blamed a lot um, and who might see this report as just another avenue for someone to unleash on them. Um, But I was so pleasantly surprised by the level of, and I I shouldn't have been because I've met so many people that work in these agencies and there's, they're people with incredible intelligence and integrity um, who often fly under the radar and don't get, sort of thanked or celebrated for mm-hmm. the incredible ways they keep our country going. Exactly. Um, so, you know, snaps to them, but uh, <laughs> they really showed up. They really showed up in a big way for this. Um, and we're in the midst of uh, planning an agency roundtable in DC for March now um, on the findings in this report. And we've had a, a tremendous um, amount of, of positivity and participation from those agencies. So that's been really exciting. That's good. That's really good to hear. But yeah, it's scared. No one wants to get canceled. No, my gosh. No. So one of the things you mentioned before is that storytelling is foundational to the solution for this problem. So talk to us about the community-based storytelling and why it's so empowering for these communities struggling with water accessibility. Ariane, there's that southern accent. I heard it. They got it. Beautiful. Come on now. Your southern bell. Come on now. That's gorgeous. Call me out. Um... Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think storytelling is one gorgeous. of the, the best tools we have to solve this problem. I, uh, I think, I mean, I think we should focus a little bit for a second on the fact that you are gorgeous. And you need to own that. <laughs> oh, God, please yeah. don't make it all about it. It's always all it's, about it. No, it's 2020. And, you know, I'm we gorgeous step and into my that accent power. is gorgeous. I'm going to own it. Oh, because mm-hmm. you don't own it already. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> some episodes and so, trust me everyone knows you own it by now okay <laughs> <laughs> so i think that i think that this this idea of storytelling is one of the most powerful tools we have because you know as we said earlier the the water sector is so big and tends to be very fractured and very siloed yeah. and so it's not like you can just get everyone that's invested in solving this problem around one table and say okay you do this and we'll do this exactly um actually you have to, the best way I've found is to empower these communities to tell their own story, especially in their local markets. Mm-hmm. And that creates some momentum for the, for those stakeholders in those markets that have that responsibility, water districts, water providers, elected officials, county mm-hmm. government. Um, they see that and, and whether it's sort of public opinion or electability, or just, they have a soft heart, they're suddenly like, okay, well, this is, this is something I need to invest in and tackle. And that's so much more effective than if I called every county manager in the United States to a convention center in Las Vegas. Um, and, and it's empowering for the communities because guess what? You know, they've been sidelined from this process from the beginning in many cases 
you know, four or five generations ago, they were sidelined and they feel that every day. They feel so unseen. They feel so unheard. Like I mentioned, they feel scared of speaking out in many cases um, and creating a safe space for them. Of course, taking into consideration when appropriate, protecting their documentation status, their anonymity, um, their, their desire not to have to speak about things that are really traumatic and re-traumatize themselves. Um, taking all those things into consideration, providing communities with the opportunity to tell stories in a way that is empowering and not pornographic, um, you know, that doesn't take advantage of their poverty in order to shock or mm -hmm. awe somebody, um, has been, I think, the most powerful tool we've had to open up this space and to create change through the Navajo Water Project and all of our programs and to get this report made. Um, if it weren't community members speaking themselves, we try to advocate on their behalf, but you're just never as effective. Yeah. Yeah. No, and it means more coming from those communities. It doesn't mean more, but it to me it's more powerful to hear it straight from them. It's mm -hmm. their story. Well, that story I that story I told you about Tori earlier. If Tori was telling you that story on this podcast, you would be weeping. Oh, right, <laughs> for sure. Because I mean, even if she said it smiling the whole time, you would be weeping because you, you, you realize yeah. yeah, you connect that way. We're human. Mm -hmm. Well, I am a swept hearing it. Local love, local gov. That's what go. I've been thinking all about. Um, oh, I love that. It's so important to hear these stories come from the audience or from the communities themselves to, you know, to empower them to tell their own story and how, um, you know, obviously we don't want to manipulate the message again, but you had mentioned this. And so I wanted to see, can you talk to us about what poverty porn is? Cause you've mentioned that to us before. And I don't know if you were the first person I've ever heard to talk about that, but um, you mentioned pornography. So <laughs> I wanted you to kind of explain uh, to our poverty listeners porn. about what poverty porn was. Yeah, sure. I, th I mean, I think that there was this, um, there has been for, um, many, many years now, this sort of push to get eyeballs and dollars um, for quote unquote charitable work. Um, and that push has been exploited. Essentially, it's taken the stories from people, um, but sometimes without even making them more dramatic or inflating them, but taking it out of their hands um, and then in putting it into a set of circumstances where it's, it could be a very effective tool of emotional manipulation. Um, and then using it to, to, to gain eyeballs or to gain dollars. And I think some of the best examples of this, for instance, were sort of the, the Feed the Children, Sally Struthers commercials, you know, that are so infamous from the 80s, yeah. um, you know, where you'd have these sort of these fly-bitten children with distended bellies yes. um, who, you know, and there's a big difference between giving a microphone to the mother of that child, um, of course, and also a support system to the mother mm -hmm. of that child. Right. Um, and talking about the structural inequity there and how you're going to solve that crisis um, and where that money's going to go and simply spending 15 seconds of a TV spot, um, you know, with some emotional music showing that child and saying, send $5 here and being completely non-transparent about where that money's going to go and how that community will be impacted. And in most cases we know, of course, that money never really reached the communities it was meant to serve or only a small portion of it did. Yeah. Um, and so I think that um, another sort of, fundamental tenet of being a human rights organization and not a charity is that um, the way we serve people is by empowering them to serve themselves. And that um, our ultimate goal is not just to provide someone a service. It's for them to be able to have a set of circumstances, whether it's, you know, water and power or the free time that comes with that to play with their kids and to pursue an education um, that all together help them realize their full human potential and their dignity. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. It's a lot to say there. Well, you know what's funny? I have a small little funny bit on poverty porn. Um, it's just that I got an email from a friend, um, Nate, from STEM Hero. And, you know, we both got this email. That's what, and yeah. basically, it's like, hey, click this link. And I was like, uh, and it was a whole bit about poverty porn. And yeah. so I'm like, hey, click this link. This will be interesting to watch. And I'm like, okay, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Do we just get spammed? I'm like Googling poverty porn <laughs> before I, fit. yeah. I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. What is this? Yeah. So it was also, actually a really good um, 
video about it and stuff, but it was, I remember that kind of funny. Yeah. Oh, share that in the show notes. I will. I will. I didn't know if I, if anyone had ever said I had a funny little bit about poverty porn before. (laughs) (laughs) Just me. Just just Arianne. Okay. Bringing it back from, from that topic. So diversity inclusion are major Mm. topics of discussion within our industry right now, the water industry. And, we hear a lot from people across the industry that our community, that our industry, the folks uh, running utilities, et cetera, they need to better reflect the communities that we serve in order to serve better. So how important is mm. diversity inclusion in your opinion to finding solutions to some of these uh, water accessibility issues? Well, there is nothing that a white man is more qualified to speak about than diversity and inclusion. So I really appreciate right. the question. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, it's completely essential. And for exactly the reason that you just outlined, I mean, if we are going to serve these communities um, and if we're truly not just going to serve them, but empower them, um, we have to come, we have to come into that equation with um, a humility um, that can really only be, that can really only be if we have a sense of, who those communities are and where they're coming from. And yes, we all have a shared, you know, the beauty of my work is that I have a shared identity with so many of the people I work with, which is so much stronger working in the U S than it was in South Sudan or in Uganda, where you have to really fall back on your humanity. Um, but that all being said, my day-to-day reality, um, my personal history, my outlook on life is so tremendously different than someone who grew up on the rural Navajo Nation or in coal Absolutely. mining country in West Virginia or in a border colonia in Texas. And frankly, I'm not going to be the most effective one um, to help them get access to water and sanitation, not only because you know they should be doing that work themselves, but I'm not even the most effective promoter or instigator of that work. So often we found through trial and error at Dig Deep that those people come from or have some personal connection to those communities themselves. So the Navajo Water Project is the perfect example. I started that project. Um, at the time, it was myself and one other person also white at the organization. And... Um, you know, we did take a very sort of deliberate community-centered approach, which I think you know makes all of our work really successful, um, but not nearly as successful as it is now. <laughs> and <laughs> the Navajo Water Project is tremendously successful because it has an all-Native staff from the top mm-hmm. down. Um, it has an incredible um, director named Emma Robbins who grew up um, on the Navajo Nation in Arizona and in Chicago, and she kind of can bridge both of those cultural and communications contexts. She has an incredible staff of, of regional managers across those three states. Um, they have an incredible staff of local solar and water technicians. And in fact, we've just spent time now investing in workforce training. So we have a really exciting project with IAPMO, who you guys must be familiar with, the International Association of Plumbing and Mechanical Officials, who rate um, and certify all of the plumbing products in the U.S., and uh, Navajo Technical University. And we're about to train and graduate the first class of plumbers ever trained on the Navajo Nation um, nice. because there is a, yeah, there's a real sort of knowledge gap brain drain there that we're trying to, to counterbalance. So um, I've been very long winded, which I guess is what humans do when they get nervous about answering a question. But um, <laughs> the short answer to is diversity and inclusion important in our work? Yes. It's probably more important than in any other sector because what we do so intimately touches mm-hmm. the daily private lives of people and to really understand how mm-hmm. they use water, how they value water, how they think about it, um, what it means for them and their families, in their communities, um, in their sort of greater regions, that all has to start with a really intimate knowledge of it yourself. And, um, you know, that's, that's well, where it begins. Something I want to add, you pointed out, you know, you're like, I'm not really qualified. I'm a white guy or whatever. And we often find out that or hear that, you know, the, the white guy in the room is like, you know, what did I ever do? What, what's wrong with me? You know, like, why, you know, like, come on, I'm, you know, sure, and sure, so sure. they feel like they're always being blamed. And so what your answer it's from accounting, we were talking about. Earlier. Yeah. So your answer, yeah. I just like want to give them that call to action or something to take back is, your answer is nothing's wrong with you. You're doing great. What you did to solve that is hire the people that you're serving and that you're wanting to reach out to. You're hiring these people to to be around the table to help solve the problem together. You're not hiring a bunch of other 
white guys like yourself to solve someone else's problem. Yeah. And, yeah, and also, you know, diversity and inclusion is about much more than just race. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm white. And so are so many of the people that we're working yes. with in Appalachia, but mm-hmm. it's also about economic diversity. It's about yes. age diversity. It's about, um, you know, cultural and belief based diversity. And I think our team at Dig Deep really reflects that there are, plenty of places for white guys to get involved in this work. And frankly, right. we know that in our sector, there are still a lot of, of really wonderful and ethical white men making decisions at the tops yes. of organizations and water districts and whatever. And we need them to pick mm-hmm. up this, this sort of banner and run with it. So yeah. I don't at all want to alienate people. Um, there, there is a piece of this work for absolutely everybody. Um, but everybody needs to participate. Every Yeah. yeah. I'm glad that you brought up flying the banner because that I was also going to say something to that point as well, that I love the humor and humility that you brought to that answer (laughs) and the the empathy that you brought. And I 100% agree with everything you said. And I love that you have, you know, the Navajo water project being run by people who come from and experience and understand uh, that culture. But yeah, to your point. We need everyone. We need everyone to fly the banner. So fly mm-hmm. the banner, George. Fly it. <laughs> <laughs> I get like so many dudes who like apologize for being, because we, we just came from a Women of Water event. And so, mm-hmm. you know, so many dudes who apologize. And I'm like, you don't have to apologize to me for being born with a penis. Like, it's just like, please yeah. help us fly this banner. Actually, of, just like, don't talk to me about that at all. Actually don't because <laughs> I just had HR training and no, yeah, but it's not about yeah. it's, uh, I get your point, but also like, I love that, you know, we all need to fly the banner and, and bring in so many different areas related to diversity mm-hmm. inclusion to, to make it happen. So last question. Wow, for this? almost before the lightning round. <laughs> Last major question. Okay. So we believe that water is the catalyst for community transformation. <clears throat> and if we can bring people together to solve uh, community water issues, who knows what else is possible? So what's your take on water and grassroots education efforts being community change agents? I feel like you answered my question in a question. <laughs> <laughs> Just say pass. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, you know, that old social network, Google Plus, that failed. I would just give that a plus. Like, Aw, okay. That's exactly what it does. Um, and I've seen that firsthand. I mean, I guess instead of saying what that means to me, I could tell you what it looks like. Um, sure. I'm probably one of the few people in the U.S. that can tell you what it looks like in these extreme environments. Um, but instead of plugging my work, I'm actually going to plug the work of this organization in California called the Community Water Center. Um, which empowers people um, to serve in their own water districts and on their own water boards. Yes. Um, so one of the one of the persistent issues has been that these water boards, um, you know, they have the same person sitting on it for 15 years in an unelected, sort of an uncontested elected position, mm-hmm. and they're not even from a community that's suffering from a water issue. Um, Meanwhile, people, of course, in communities that are facing these water issues have no time or resources to even attend those meetings, much less serve on those boards. And when they get in the room, they feel out of place because of language or education barriers or because they don't have the right clothes to wear. And so the Community Water Center really addresses this by finding those seats that haven't been contested or sometimes seats that are just open and that no one's going after. But they they find people who are inside those communities who want to solve that problem or who, who are really invested in the solution to that problem. And they mm. empower them. They give them everything from the training to the time, to the ride, to the outfit. Um, and I think that is the grassroots way we transform water governance in the U S is by through democracy. That's how we built everything in this country. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, back to your before, back to your initial point around the whole blame game. Uh, I think one piece of it is that, for reasons that may or may not be in our control, some of that is we are to blame, you know, for not showing up, not knowing when to show up, not knowing how to show up. I mean, especially in rural communities, we've heard a lot about how just because water has just gone so much into the background, in some cases, people don't even know they're supposed to care that they have a voice, how powerful their voice is. So, um, 
that's that's amazing. That's the first I've ever heard of that yeah, organization. So that. thank you so much for sharing that with us. Oh, you should have their executive director on. She's incredible. Oh, it's it's happening. It's yeah, written so down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can just give us give us their name, and we will make that happen. Um, okay, I will. So, lightning round. Lightning round. All right, here okay. we go. Lightning round. Okay, what is your favorite book mm-hmm. right now that you can recommend to us? Oh, well, I read it like that. (laughs) I just took vacation and I'm reading this book called Lie With Me, um, which is a beautiful queer love story. And I tend to read, you know, we talked about reading reports. I read for escapism mostly. So yeah, I'm a novel guy. Yes. Nice. Lie with me. Okay. I love it. Okay. What's something that you do every day that drives your productivity? Something I do every day that drives my productivity is never doing the same thing every day. Ooh, nice. nice. Keeping it fresh. Yeah. Uh, And so we've been talking a lot about creating change and small things that make change. And so in our line of work as educators in municipal water utilities and dealing with public, we would talk to people about things and they would say, well, what difference does it make if I, if I change, I'm just one person. It's not going to make a difference. Obviously we disagree with that. And we think that one person making a change can be contagious and you never know what that's going to inspire in others. So what is the one call to action that you're most passionate about that you believe could ultimately change the world? Oh, I have a really good one for this. Okay. So we did this thing a few years back inspired by some of our followers called the four leaders challenge. I think one of the, one of the issues um, that keeps Americans from connecting with their water resources is that it always has been so cheap and easy and abundant. Just walk over to the wall and turn it on. So uh, at first we took young people. Now we take everybody and we say, you know, grab a gallon jug of water um, or of milk or whatever, you know, empty it out or grab a, a one liter bottle and fill it four times. Um, and for 24 hours, that's all the water you get to use. Like brush your teeth oh, out yeah. of it, cook your food out of it shower out of it, try to wash your clothes out of it. It's just enough to drink. Like, you know, you need two or three liters to just replace the water that you're burning with your calories and another liter, liter and a half to wash your hands, prepare some food. I will tell you, I mean, do it for a week if you can, but just if you do it for 24 hours, it will completely change the way you look at water. Mm -hmm. You'll become so paranoid when you hear a tap running. Um, And I think (laughs) that fundamentally the name of the game if we're really going to solve this, close this water gap in America, convince our Congress to reinvest in infrastructure, you know, have a water future that's really hopeful, we're going to have to figure out how to fall in love with our water a little bit, um, how to create a relationship with it, um, you know, a relationship that just doesn't exist right now. And so little things like that can help us fall in love with this thing that is incredibly supportive of us. That's amazing. And that challenge is on your website, right? Isn't that the one that you... Yeah, it's uh, it's accessible through the website. You have to sort of sleuth for it, but it also has its own website. It's uh, fourleaders.org. Yeah, so we have a lot of water comms and educators uh, in our audience. And so if you haven't heard of that one, definitely check it out and use that in the things that you do when you engage with the public because I've, I've seen that one before. And uh, it's Oh my it's a good God, so we see people at like water utilities and stuff do it. And you'll have a, like an engineer who's worked at the utility for 25 years and been like, Oh, I've never been so connected to my work before. <laughs> it feels completely different. Yeah. That's awesome. So <laughs> digdeep.org, check them out. Doing amazing work. Uh, George, thank you so much for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule to chat with us today. Yes. It's been it's been a blast and we appreciate it. Thanks, Stephanie. Thanks, Ariane. And uh, keep up the good work. Water for everybody. Water for everybody. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Never miss out on future episodes by signing up for the Lab Notes, formerly the Water Nerd Newsletter. This is your one-stop shop for the podcast catalyst and all things Watercom's revolution. Sign up at roguewaterlab.org. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at roguewaterlab. Plus, still keep up with the H2Duo shenanigans at the underscore H2Duo. Don't forget to share with your friends and fellow water nerds so we can continue to grow the tribe. Remember, it doesn't matter if you're a water communicator, educator, or an engineer or operator. You are a communicator. As public health stewards, we have a responsibility to the people we serve to have our comms game on point, to build the trust and support necessary to create a resilient water future. Investing in comms is an investment in yourself and your organization. Why? Because just like what one of our favorite quotes says, those who tell the stories rule the world.